This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kempf and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, the podcast series brought to you by the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences here at the University of Queensland. This series is about those little things that we can do in our university classroom, the little things that can make a big difference. My name is Seb, and as always, I'm joined here by my friend and colleague Al. Hi, everyone. The series is motivated by our belief that what ultimately matters to the student experience is what happens in our classrooms. In our universities, we talk a lot about course design, teaching policy, teaching budgets. But what we don't often get a chance to do is talk about small examples of great practice that can have a really big impact. And so in Hired Heroes, we want to share those examples by having conversations with great teachers. With teachers about the practices they bring to their classrooms that help them bring the classroom alive and which they believe could be adopted by others to good effect. And we want to have those conversations without using the kind of jargon that's associated with teaching committees in higher education. So this is a buzzword-free zone. We won't be using words like flipped classroom, blended learning, work-integrated learning, research-led teaching. What we do when we hear those words, which we believe are better suited to teaching committees, is press this button. N-O. We hope the buzzer will encourage us all to talk in everyday terms about teaching practices. And in today's podcast, we're talking about making students undertake scavenger hunts and have them use their own bodies as empirical devices. And to do that, we are being joined by Dr. Ryan Williams, who is a lecturer in studies in religion at the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry. Ryan, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, when Al and I were thinking of who could we actually interview next, we stumbled across you when we learned that you do something really interesting. You expose your students to something, to, you expose them to goat yoga. And of course, we'll have to definitely talk about this at a later stage. But in a way, let's start off more broadly with how you approach teaching the studies of religion to your students. Many people don't know that studies in religion is, is a serious discipline, that we're one of the longest-standing uh, disciplines in the history of, of the humanities. And what we find today in teaching religion is that students come from all sorts of walks of life. Students come from having no religious background. Uh, students come from having a religious background um, to being spiritual and not religious. And so it's very, very difficult to teach this area. And we find that when we're teaching this area, that students are often uh, not even interested in it at, at, at all, so they don't know about our courses, or, or when they are interested. What I find is that uh, our students are incredibly diverse. They come from a place of being very religious, often growing up in religious households, or else they come from a secular background and they really don't uh, buy religion today at all. And so the question that I, you need to ask is, how do you cater to students from two completely, often polarized backgrounds? And that's an incredibly different task. And so what I try to do in my course is to cover the history of religions and to really get them to realize that religion today is actually embodied. It's inhabited, it's experienced, and actually it's morphed throughout history in remarkable ways, especially throughout the 21st and 20th centuries. And so even when students are participating in things like Anzac Day, going to a rock concert or various secular things, I'm really 
interested in communicating with them, you know, what sort of community aspects does that have? What sort of ritualistic aspects does that have? And that allows for a hook into some of the questions about religion as a long-standing phenomenon and what it might mean to people today. You know, it's important, obviously, for you to make your students aware of how religion is embodied and lived in our everyday environments and everyday spaces. Why is that so important to you and how do you generate this awareness in your students? I think I'm often set against this misunderstanding of what studying religion is today. Religion is a sociological fact, it's a human fact, it's a historical and cultural fact. And so what I want to do is to get students to get out of their heads this idea that religion is this dead sort of text that we sort of dust off and we look through manuscripts because it's very much alive, it's very much lived and embodied. So the question, as you ask it and put it very nicely, is how then do we enable students to see this? Well, one thing is for students to be very aware of some of the quirky things that are out there. And so one tutorial, we had this opportunity to go and see a presentation of goat yoga that was happening on campus. Now, I had never heard of goat yoga before. <laughs> Neither had I. It was this amazing sort of opportunity. And so we went and we observed these very sweet people with these very sweet goats kind of doing stretching together. Wow. And I, I've never experienced this. And I was envious. I really wanted to be in there, but we didn't sign up, unfortunately. But we were able to observe what was going on and sort of begin to ask questions that this is something that's happening in a purportedly secular university. It's a form of spirituality or is it a form of fitness or is it a form of mental well-being and so it was a good opportunity for students to get out there see something that was happening and to ask questions about hybrid religious and spiritual and uh, psychological phenomenon uh, therapeutic phenomenon and to really get them to see how messy the boundaries are between religion spirituality and psychology I'm interested that that was your first experience because we have been calling you the goat yoga man <laughs> as if you are the, the sensei or guru who is running the class. So it's good to clear that up. One of the things that really struck me, which resonates with something that's important to me as a teacher, is breaking down myths about your field, subject area, or even topic itself. Do you see that the students are responding quickly to that because that's something that I have to do as a public policy scholar mm. to say you think X, Y, Z but actually it's something far more different and exciting. Yes, so breaking down boundaries, yes and I think that that happens uh, from the first lecture when we talk about UFO religion and trying to place that in history and trying to place that in their minds What is UFO religion? UFO religion is quite popular, actually. Since the 1960s, we had uh, new religious movements that were apocryphal. They were looking to the end of times, which, as you would expect at the end of times, would be brought about by UFOs coming down and picking up people. So there's some obvious religious <laughs> themes there in terms of the end times, but also then merged with uh, science fiction. But people actually still do this stuff. Mm. I really want to enroll. <laughs> well, if you were to enroll, you'd find out about the scavenger hunt. I'd love to hear you talk about that a bit, because I think it's a really great example of exactly doing that type of practice. 
What I want students to do is to be aware of spaces and places and the meanings that are brought about in those spaces. It's very difficult to do that in a lecture theater, although you could certainly do it. But what I encourage students to do is to go on a scavenger hunt uh, throughout the university's quadrangle, and so the great court here at the University of Queensland. And it's there that I ask them to make some observations around the uh, grotesques, as they're called, or the gargoyles, the carvings. Who is represented there? Uh, what sort of figures are there? And in particular, I want them to notice things that they never notice before. And so they they presumably walk through these features every day with their heads down on their phones or rushing to their lectures, and they don't ever notice that there are some quite powerful symbols. And so what I ask them to do is to find a symbol for knowledge and then to come back and report what is that symbol of knowledge. As we know, the, the court has uh, indigenous symbols. It also has uh, Western figures of knowledge. And I use this, this exercise to open students' eyes to observing the world around them, to notice features of place and space and how meaning is made through representation. I also use it as a, a point to understand power and how power and knowledge are connected. And what I repeatedly get are students who come back and who bring back an image of Shakespeare as, a, as the, the pinnacle of knowledge, or uh, Plato or Socrates, which are uh, figures who are represented as well. And I ask them, well, why is that the pinnacle of knowledge? There's also indigenous flora and fauna. Why isn't that form of knowledge and representation uh, seen as being true knowledge? And the other day I had the un uncanny experience of a student coming into the lecture hall and taking a photo of me. Again, awkward, but it was a really good teaching moment for me to say, well, why is it that I am the embodiment of knowledge in your mind? What sort of hierarchies are we reproducing? And I commented that, actually, I want to learn from you. You bring your own experiences here. Why do we have this expectation around how knowledge is generated by a certain type of person? Why is expertise aligned with a certain discourse, as you would have it in, in some of the social sciences? This resonates with a lot of contributions that we've had in this series, and also your teaching, Seb, where we see teachers who are keen to make students aware of the world that's around them, but they're unaware of in their daily lives. I know you do that. I do it a little bit as well. How do you then take that awareness, which is great for getting them into the classroom, exciting them, how do you then take that and translate it into the practical assignments and assessment? One of the things that I do is I get them to write field notes. And so we have a, a small session where, where I get them to jot down field notes. And we go to various sites together often, and I, I get them to write down observations. And my first lecture... I go through some of my own field notes. And so I, I believe that if you're going to give a student an assignment, you had better do it yourself. <laughs> if you're nervous to do it yourself, or if you don't do it yourself, you're not leading by example. So we went through all my own field notes, and they're quite frank, kind of embarrassing things. I had gone to a, uh, a session on in invoking a trance-like state, and I had never been to one of these things, and my field notes were just very frank and blunt about how unco uncomfortable I was and how we did deep breathing, and I felt like I was just jumping up and down and hyperventilating for 15 <laughs> minutes. And But it, it was a very frank 
discussion, but it also means for them to get a sense of what they're exploring, what what they're feeling, and then to get a sense of why did I find it strange? Did other people in the room find it strange? And what's that sets those people who are already quite familiar with this type of spirituality apart from me? And what other questions can we ask about spirituality and spiritual practice? Mm. Because there's probably a point in there that actually I thought, this isn't so bad. I'm kind of into this. This is like <laughs> a good aerobics kind of thing. And it's it's trying to get that type of knowledge that you can only get when you're doing it. So much about religion is about ri- uh, ritual, it's about practice, it's about the body, and you can't know that by reading a textbook. You need to actually do it. So it's experiential, but mm. also self-reflective as well. Absolutely, yes. I find your formulation that you like to have your students use their own bodies as empirical devices. Mm. Really interesting, right? And that's what you do with going to mosques and going to churches and other religious sites and you kind of have them write these diaries as part of reflection on that experience. So I'd like to hear a little bit about what you think You know, having them use their bodies, leaving their classrooms, do visits to different sites. What's the advantage of this rather than trying to replicate this in a lecture theater? Using the body as an, an empirical tool is really helpful to get students to understand some more complex theory. And what I encourage them to do is to use their body, their senses, their feelings, their perceptions in a way that gets them to connect with theories about community or about religious experience. And also it allows them to get a place and a sense of where they sit. And so emotions are quite crucial, I think, in, in lots of field work if you're a social scientist, but it's also quite crucial to learning and it can be used as a, as a teaching tool to enable students to get a sense of, you know, why do I feel uncomfortable in this place? Um, am I dressed appropriately? And then that makes you very aware of what it means to look in a certain way as you develop this own uh, subjectivity. Uh, you're reflective on your own appearance. You know, who are the other people around here? Do I feel like I belong? What does it feel like? not to belong, to feel like an outsider. So what I find is that as students go through this, these site visits and they, they go to mosques or uh, relig- uh, churches or temples or, or to football stadium, these sorts of things, that they really are focused on needing to identify these emotions and, and learn about their own identities as well as the identities of others. I wanted to just pick you up on that idea of feeling uncomfortable, students feeling challenged and uncomfortable. What are the challenges both for you as a teacher and for the student body when you when you adopt these practices? I think feeling uncomfortable is great. <laughs> I think that, that if students feel too comfortable, they don't learn. Mm. And so... Obviously, there's there's a bell curve here that if they <laughs> feel too uncomfortable, they'll run away. But if they don't feel comfortable enough, um, uncomfortable enough, then they're not going to do the learning that they need to do. And I think that's a very difficult through some of the course readings or theory to evoke that sort of uh, that sweet spot of feeling uncomfortable mm. just by being in new places. I have students talk about, yeah, I would never have gone to this place before if it wasn't for your course. And so it opens them up to being more comfortable with their, their own 
identities, more comfortable with their own city, more comfortable with other people who they wouldn't have interacted with before. Mm. Um, and all of that starts by being just a bit uncomfortable. Mm. So how can we evoke that in students is really yeah, what, what I, I like. That's a really good thing. If there are teachers out there who are listening, though, what kind of skills might they need? You mentioned that you're comfortable doing field notes and, and, and re- reflecting on your experiences. Is that something that you have to have to adopt these kind of processes? This is not the normal way of working for students. You're going to get a lot of pushback. You're going to get a lot of students who are going to want to ask, well, what will I be graded on? Mm. How do I do well in this course? How do I get a top grade? I try not to talk about grades. I say, this is what you need to do. Um, It's about depth. It's about analysis. And just the other day, I, I was trying to articulate exactly how you explain this to students. And so I just simply drew the difference between learning on a line from point A to point B versus what we're doing here, which is a circle, a circle or mm. a funnel, something that involves reading, writing, observing, reflecting. And the more you do that, the more finely tuned your own analysis and reflection becomes. And it's through that process, that journey, that you're then able to get to the grade that you really want to get. Mm. <laughs> Ryan, I want to ask, it's very unusual to hear someone teach a course in this particular way? I mean, did you did you come through university having exposed to a teacher who has done things along these lines that inspired you? Or did you come up with this yourself? I mean, what led you to uh, do this and how much courage was actually involved to take these steps? Yeah, I think it actually arises from the fact that I was a really crap student going through my <laughs> undergraduate degree. And so I, I found that sometimes in the lectures they were overly abstract. They weren't really applicable to the real world. And so I found that actually learning how I learned was incredibly useful to then teaching. Um, and how can we make concepts real for students? How can we bring it a bit closer home? And I think I've also been really grateful to have some incredible students through a range of experience, experiences in my life who have just kind of been very forward with me and who've said, who've called me on it, who've said, that's bullcrap, and have forced <laughs> me to kind of uh, go forward and, and, and to use their, their bullcrap index or meter in order to, uh, to refine my teaching. So it was just the honest feedback of students as well. And that's great advice to finish off on, isn't it? That we, we should do a lot more of... Uh exposing ourselves to the bullcrap index. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if someone were listening in right now and thinks, actually, that, that would be wonderful. I'd like to adopt, adopt certain aspects of what you're doing. Do you have some sort of big takeaway advice that you'd throw out to someone? I would say get student input. As much as you can, always get your students to be conversation partners with you. Always keep listening and getting them out there and experiencing and learn from them. Mm. I think we, we often think that we bring our own, our own material that's of primary importance, but actually it needs to be a two-way flow. Mm. And that's been such a strong theme through the series, getting students out of the classroom and changing the experience, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, but also like having them learn and re-entering the conversation as, as a co-shared learning space, you know? Mm. Well, this is really wonderful. We're, we're glad to have had you here. If you listening in liked what you heard and if you would like to engage further with some of the themes we've been discussing here or you want to uh, find out more of what wonderful things Ryan is doing, whether it's about goat yoga, scavenger hunts or visiting religious sites, then by all means, you know, post on our Facebook site 
website, coming through Instagram or through Twitter. We certainly have been very happy to have you on board. Thanks for joining us on High Red Heroes and we look forward to your company next time.